Hey guys, it's your favorite municipal, Dylan Welch here, or at least I hope I am. I probably am, right? Doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, just wanted to share some exciting news before we start the show. Uh, we finally got on iTunes, so you guys can subscribe there. Uh, a lot of uh, the fans out there, the municipals, were complaining about uh, only being able to find us on Stitcher, but you can finally subscribe to us on iTunes, so make sure to do that. We're very proud to be the only explicitly rated municipal government-related podcast. Gotta love it. Anyway, uh, enjoy the show. We'll hopefully get some uh, episodes to you more consistently over the next couple weeks. Cheers. Episode 7 of Municipals, uh, and this is actually uh, a rogue episode. So, <laughs> Britt currently is up in Boston, uh, and Dylan, I imagine, is just stuck on the subway in New York City. Um, so, I'm David, and I'm here with my friend Raynell, um, who is currently in the Urban Planning Department at the University of Maryland, and is at the, what's the Department of Housing... Uh, Department, uh, Maryland Department of Housing and Community Development. So working for interning for the state as well, doing a bunch of fun stuff in the urban planning sphere, as it were. Mm-hmm. So Ray is uh, more of a planner as opposed to us policy nerd people um, that are the norm on municipals. Uh, but I'm happy to have him on, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm happy to have an episode where everyone recording is in D.C. Yeah. Um, so that we don't have to do, deal with weird uh, Skype issues. But I also need to describe for everyone listening Ray's sweatshirt that he came here with, which I'm hoping was intentional. Um, if you were a kid and had that um, like city carpet that's just like green grass and like the school and the parking lots and everything, that is on his sweatshirt. Um, if you didn't have that as a kid, I don't know what your childhood was about, and I'm sorry. Um, I don't know how you got interested in urban policy enough to listen to this podcast. I think that this is probably an important, if not easily forgotten, part of the origin story of most I imagine, urban nerds. Like every urban planning nerd had that carpet in their home. Like that was that was like we're kind of joking, but <laughs> kind of not. <laughs> kind of not. That was how I got into city stuff. Was like uh, moving my Hot Wheels around that rug and was like this. The intersection seems poorly optimized. And like, why is this crosswalk uh, here and not over here? Um, Just so much space devoted to parking. And, and no, that carpet had definitely had mandatory minimum <laughs> parking rules. Like that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Hold on here. The like the hospital has like maybe five parking spots, and then like the church has two, um, and yeah, just poorly planned out, not dense at all. I'm surprised I haven't seen that as like a parody article <laughs> of like uh, the the city rug needs like better zoning rules. That would have been a good April Fool's Day article. Yeah. It's too late. Again. Did City Lab or something do an April Fool's Day thing? Greater Greater Washington had uh, Witch Ramada, which yeah. I enjoyed immensely. <laughs> um, instead of their typical Witch, witch Wamada uh, yeah. weekly. No, um, be... Uh, being accessory to the planning of um, Greater Greater Washington's April Fool's Day content is interesting because there is a surprising amount of thought put into that essay. <laughs> like we had a whole email thread about um, the parody names for the authors. Oh God. Um, speaking of GT Wash, uh, speaking of transitions, <laughs> uh, how do you feel about the Metro painting thing? Yeah, I'm see I'm of multiple minds of it, right? So there's the whole architectural aspect where you know the architects many architects are sort of high on the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority <laughs> as a shining example of good brutalist architecture, good sort of 70s brutalist architecture and as such should be protected. Um, and we should provide some context. Then. Yeah, so so the metro stations, some of the underground metro stations, these beautiful, you know, cavernous, you know, curvilinear vaulted yeah. arch ceilings are getting uh, 
Um, they're a bit dark and a bit grimy, and Metro's looking to paint some of them white, and they've already started at Union Station, and I believe they've painted a few other stations white Are in they the planning past. on doing more? So I know um, Farragate North has been painted for a while, but it's like a concrete, it's close to concrete color, so nobody's really noticed. Yeah. Um, my, like, Twitter and email and everything was blowing up, I think, on, like, uh, last Wednesday, because... Um, Matt Johnson, who is a planner in I think Montgomery County, works for Greater Greater Washington, tweeted out that um, them painting the Union Station Metro is like a, a, a violation of the brutalist principles, which it kind of is. Yeah. Um, the brutalist comes from the like French word for unfinished concrete, yeah. actually. So, um, and just like every modern architect fan and like transportation planner kind of lost their shit this weekend over metro panning this one station oh well i mean it's interesting and, and you see a lot of the design folks and a lot of the historic preservation folks and a lot of the architecture people mm-hmm. were against it but a lot of people who are pure transit people or a lot of people who are um who are or planners or, or in general just journalists mm-hmm. were for it because i think it, it does or theoretically could um May have a benefit, uh, have make a benefit the on experience. Yeah, make the station experience better, make it a little brighter. Uh, whether or not that's true or not, uh, that's been, been another topic of debate. And a lot of the people who are on the architect side of things have said that doesn't really make a difference, and it's not worth the effort, um, or it's not worth at least the the tarnishing of the the quote beautiful quote significant. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah no, the, architecture. Um, it's the American Institute of Architects, uh, which gave the whole metro system a big award a couple years ago for like foundations and like excellent um, like genre defining design put out a statement about this like half painted metro station that said they expressed deep concern regarding WMATA's decision to paint the interior of their metro stations bright white so like this is a big deal for a lot of architects I mean it is a big deal It's it would be I mean, a lot of architects hold WMATA up to the same standard as any you know U.S. Capitol building, Washington Monument, anything like that. Yeah, to be so, fair, like the award that the American Institute of Architects gave Metro is the same thing that like Frank Lloyd Wright has been getting. Mm-hmm. So like, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, and and generally, you know, it's not as old as a lot of these places, but it's also it's most so over so used so utilized, and it's such a living thing compared to even most buildings which are occupied, but not in the same sort of sense, and not as much of a cultural touchstone for the city. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot you have to balance and a lot you have to handle. Um, I just think that also that the fact that it just happened and that nobody, there were no public yeah. meetings, there was no anything about it. It didn't seem like that Metro. I think the people within Metro didn't think that the outside world would care and didn't think that there'd be this <laughs> exactly. backlash. And to what extent the outside world beyond the kind of bubble, the echo chamber that is DC, mm-hmm. the urban design nerds, to the extent that it's been able to get outside of that, I think it's, it'll take a few few weeks to see um, yeah. to see if people do actually care. The thing is, they can't really undo that. Mm-hmm. That's very, true. Very hard to. Yeah, it, it is a very permanent change to a very you know significant station. Union, Union Station was one of the first uh, first metro stations. Yeah, because the Red Line was the first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was like one of the original five stations, right? Yeah, I think it was originally um, Rhode Island Avenue, Brentwood, uh, Union Station, Judiciary Square. Um, Metro Center and and Farragut, I think, okay. was the first loop, and then it may have extended to Dupont, and then they opened and filled with Gallery Place right. a little bit later on. Yeah. Okay. So, but I think you actually raised a good point that like it's the people that are like in tune to what's going on with transit and transportation in DC and like architecture that were the ones commenting on this, but yeah, maybe for like overall user experience of the station, the the everyday person going through Union Station is either not going to care or actually might like it. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, like, WMATA didn't really query even those people about this decision. So I think there's still definitely some fair criticism there. Um, but, but it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. Like, it, I guess they got to finish painting the station now. Exactly. they got to finish that one, and then we'll see what the what sort of backlash. I'm surprised they weren't able... I guess painting is hard, but... You think they would have been able to... Do it in one go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, the, it's kind of awful to leave that just weird half-painted station just sitting there and just like... Or, or at least over multiple consecutive days, because I think it's still... Is it still half-painted or did they finish? I I, no, I, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's still 
not not totally done. Right. Uh, but I remember I had like uh, a meeting near Union Station uh, last week, and I looked up. I was like, "Oh, that's weird." And I like didn't think too much of it because I thought maybe it had been like that and I hadn't noticed. Uh, and then like ten minutes later, my phone just like blows up with people talking about this. Yeah. Um, so th- there's a good niche controversy in the transit world, but I think actually like has some wider implications for just transparency at Metro mm-hmm. user experience. And this is with, with this, it gets into one of the sort of um, interesting debates in historic preservation is where do you draw the line between, you know, what, what makes something historic and for most buildings, the line is, I think at, at this point, most people use a 50 year threshold. So mm-hmm. Metro by a lot of definitions isn't historic, but it's something that we know because it's such a major culturally significant thing within our city, people know that it's going to be historically significant. We don't have to wait for that threshold to come on. But it's yeah. it's something where if you if you're using Metro every day and you work for Metro, you don't think of it as historic because it's just mm-hmm. it's just Metro. But I think it's interesting that like a lot of um, brutalist buildings that people tend to, to trash are now entering that fifty year threshold of being considered historic. And like I wonder if public sentiment sentiment will start to come around on those. Like I can think of some brutalist buildings that uh, even though they always will look kind of cold, are fascinating as like architectural yeah, subjects. A lot Metro is obviously one of those. A lot of them are fascinating, and I think I think it will depend on a, on a bunch of factors. I think certain ones, Boston City Hall, for example, is one that mm-hmm. everyone really hates because not only is it ugly, but it's really not a great use of space. The yeah. plaza is is a mess, and it's also a symbol of of just kind of a, a botched urban renewal downtown in Boston. So I think. Mm-hmm. Ones that have these really deep negative associations with them specifically, I the think FBI uh, building, the FBI building, building as yeah. well. Though that's one I kind of like, especially given its its purpose. Even though it's literally falling apart. That's the other thing with the, with these buildings is that yeah, the ones that are actually well built, um, I think they'll they'll stick around, and I think that while they won't be ever truly loved, I think that people will warm up to them a bit. But the, that's the other thing with these concrete buildings is that concrete is not as great as we thought it was in the <laughs> 60s and 70s. Um, we're learning that with our water mains um, oh, yeah. in a lot of places, and we're also learning that with these buildings like the FBI. Wait, are they concrete water mains? Yeah, so that's a big problem in in any area built in the 70s. It was built with um, this pre-stressed concrete, um, this reinforced pre-stressed concrete that they thought was just going to be like the best thing ever. Oh. And that's... Throughout Montgomery County, if you if you're in Montgomery County, Maryland, every winter we get two or three water main breaks that are kind of kind of rough. And the worst one was, um, well, there were a few bad ones recently. There's one in Prince George's County that cut off water to National Harbor mm. during the middle of the summer, uh, not this most recent summer, but the summer before that, uh, and that was a, a a pretty bad water main break. And then there was one on River Road that. You know, cars were washed away because it was a seventy-two inch water main. Oh so, yeah, I did hear about. That. And all those are are just concrete failures that are really hard to detect and are becoming more and more prevalent. And the older pipes that are made with metals, the ones that weren't made with lead, um, are actually doing a lot better than than, than uh, those are. So concrete in general, that's something to watch with the whole infrastructure thing. Is just the decline of American concrete. It's a decline of American concrete. Is that a book yet? It should be. Can we write that book? <laughs> the Rise amazing. and Fall of Concrete. Yeah. It's amazing, and this is like the third tangent we're on in the opening segment, but it's amazing how long it's taken us to figure out something as simple as like water pipes. Mm-hmm. Like lead is poisoning people. The concrete ones are falling apart. Like we've fought, I think like unless PVC suddenly like, I don't know, makes you go insane and we just haven't <laughs> noticed yet. Like I, I don't know. It's funny that it's taken so long for that. Especially such a simple, such a simple thing as yeah. water pipes. Like yeah. the Romans did that, mm-hmm. and it was probably fine. Yeah, those bricks. Yeah, I guess is how they did that. So <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Um, so one thing that is not on your sweatshirt or on the city rug, I think, is an airport, right? It would be interesting if it was. That'd be a great point of discussion. because yeah. uh, <laughs> it'd be a. It would definitely cause some controversy within the town. Well, yeah, because you probably have to displace the hospital or something like that. Yeah, it would, ha- it would have to be, it would be a mess, so. <laughs> so we brought Ray here today uh, to talk to us a little bit about airports, because um, me, Britt, and Dylan uh, will wax poetic about trains all day, um, but here is one mode of planning and transportation that we haven't really talked about much. Um, and Ray, you've been to a lot of airports. Right? I have. Um, I, I should have brought my number off the top of my head, but I think I'm in the 50s, I believe, um, in terms of number of airports I've been to. Um, 
I, I've got opportunity to travel a lot. I work for a company that runs uh, high school, middle school and high school history trivia tournaments around the world. Do you still do trivia ball? I, I still do that. I still run, still run events. And I don't play anymore that much, but I still, still run events. So that's taken me internationally a lot, and that's taken me across the country as well. Um, and then at GW, I broadcasted women's basketball for the student radio station, so I got to travel for that as well. Um, the fact that, that you had like and two hours to spare for this is amazing. Yeah, I'm a, I, I, <laughs> I, I try to stay busy, but um, but yeah, airports have always been fascinating to me because there's just from from a purely just within the, in and of themselves, I think they're they're really interesting because there's so many ways. You could design them um, because it's a relatively new concept. Obviously, we've only had planes since you know, first century, the of, first decade of the twentieth century. So there, there's so many considerations to take, uh, to take things to take into consideration, both on the kind of the people side, but also the plane side, and how to you know, arrange runways and how to make that all work and fit as a as a good system. Um, but the fact is that no matter how much we think about these things and we try to plan for these things, so few airports, especially in the U.S. Um, are getting built, and a lot of that comes back to some of the same same concepts that you touch on in, in urban planning in general about how it, it is really tough to build these 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 land uses. We call them Lulus in the urban planning world. These What's are a Lulu? Uh, Lulu is a locally unwanted land use. Um, so that's anything uh, that people need but they do not want next to them. Um, okay, so, so like the target of NIMBYs. Yes, basically. Yeah, Gen- generally though, the NIMBYs. Um, Though so some NIMBY targets are not really, they shouldn't be unwanting them like light rail. There's no reason <laughs> right. to really not want that next to your house. But those can be considered Lulus. Um, the ones that I find more interesting are the ones that any NIMBY movement would actually be legitimate because they are actually, you know, actually bad things would like you prisons. Airports, one of those. It's interesting because um, there's you know noise pollution. The like they take up a huge amount of space. They totally change the town. It, it is yeah. It is tough. I would I would consider that legitimate, and I, and I think that any concern that any community has to getting a, a new airport or to getting an airport expansion, I do consider that legitimate. Airplanes are loud, like you mentioned. Um, there's the real pollution, and yeah, a new airport will completely change the community. First of all, have to displace uh, displace people, and they built Dulles, this little town of Willard, Virginia, this little crossroad, um, is now the only place you could ever see it referenced. Is for whatever reason. If you're at one of the further out uh, concourses at Dulles, sometimes if you're on Facebook, it'll tag you as Willard, Virginia. And I think that's how I found out about it. I was like... Does anyone still live in the town of Willard? No, I think the entire what was Willard is now kind of under the runways of Dulles. And that was built in the 60s, but... um, Rip in peace, Willard. Yeah, so you have to move a lot of people. Um, You have sometimes have to move a lot of land if you're building near water. There's a whole host of issues with that. So I think... One, one, one point I do want a uh, little case study to talk about, to think about this with, is, is Chicago. Chicago is a city with, mm-hmm. with two major airports. Um, O'Hare. And O'Hare is like the busiest in the country, or second? Uh, like I believe that. it's the second busiest to right. Atlanta. Yeah, so O'Hare is a majorly busy airport. It's a hub for both American and United. Mm-hmm. I think it's the only airport that's a hub for, um, hub for both JFK. No, JFK is just American. So yeah, it's the only airport that's a hub for... For, for both of the big airlines. Um, so you have O'Hare, which is big. It's, they've added a new runway. They've, they've added a new terminal relatively recently. But it is surrounded by Rosemont and some of the other suburbs in, in Chicago. And then you have Midway Airport, which is one of my favorite stories in terms of hmm. urban airports. Um, it was, at one point, the busiest square mile in the world, was the joke. So this goes back to the 1790s. The Northwest Ordinance was one of the few things that the Articles of Confederation government was able to do. Uh-huh. And it says This that is going, like, way back. It is going way back. Yeah, it goes back to the, the whole story of the Midway goes way back. So um, every they said that every 36 square miles, it would be these... Everything, the whole Northwest, as that, as it were, which is now like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, all of that, would be divided into these one-mile squares. And for every 36 square miles, one of those square miles would be devoted to education. Huh. Uh, so as time came on and Chicago grew, um, Chicago had their one square mile um, for education. Uh, but is that know, where like the land grant universities come from? Uh, a lot of it's it's related. A lot of that land was used for that and mm-hmm. swapped for that. Yeah, it's a related uh, concept. So Chicago, they had the Chicago Public Schools own this square mile of land, but 
you know, being Chicago, they decided not to use it for education. They decided to instead <laughs> lease it uh, to build a little airstrip. Somebody was able to build a little airstrip, but then they built it out more and more. And, and, and now, at, by the 50s, it was the busiest airport in America mm-hmm. until they built O'Hare. But it's all built in just this one square mile. They've since expanded a little bit outside. They've bought a little property outside of it. And it's but, like in a relatively dense urban area. Relatively right? dense urban area. And yeah, the public schools owned the airport until the 80s. No that's way. When, that's when they sold the land. Yeah, Chicago public schools owned Midway. <laughs> so um, weird tangent there. Was but, that like a moneymaker for the public school system? Yeah, they leased, they, they were leasing the airport leasing the land out to the yeah. airport who's running it. Um, they weren't actually running the airport. That would be kind of interesting. <laughs> um, this airport run by teachers and yeah. principals and stuff. But um, So that... Charter airport. Yeah. So Chicago has... They've always talked about having a, a, another airport because O'Hare is getting, getting kind of crowded. And O'Hare, like many of the other airports that are in, in cities where they're talking about building another airport, it's, it's hard to have these 24-hour operations in and out because it, it disrupts so, much, so many people living around it. Um, but I mean, the issue with any city trying to build a new airport is that it needs to be far from people, but it needs to be close, close to, the to city. people. Yeah. yeah, it needs to be both far from anything in its immediate surroundings, but still pretty easily accessible to to the city. So mm-hmm. Chicago has been exploring an option of building an airport uh, outside of the town of Piatone. Uh, Piatone, Illinois, is is way out there. Yeah, it which is, when you told me about that, Google mapped that. Yeah. And it's so far away from Chicago. <laughs> it's so far. It's like not, it's almost not Illinois. Yeah. Well, it's like Gary, Indiana, I think I said, was closer to Chicago than Piatone is. Yeah. As of now, it's a 53-minute drive. Theoretically, they would build a, a high-speed rail that would go out there and connect to the Is that part easier. of the plans, or is that just a pipe dream? That's part of the plans, and I don't think they're going to build an airport out there unless there is a direct transit connection, thankfully. But is that like, that seems to be what's necessary now, because like, Thinking about Dulles, mm-hmm. and now like Dulles was what, what was that the 1950s, 1960s, uh, 1960s, yeah. And now they're just getting around to the Silver Line out there. But it seems like any big airport project now is also going to be a transit project. Yeah, because you have to build a rail out there. You really do, and and that's um, that's some of the issues with with these, especially in America. It goes hand in hand with the issue with high speed rail and the fact that yeah, if you're going to build something that far out. We don't really have the high-speed rail infrastructure in most places mm-hmm. um, to do that. I mean, that's the only way that I mean BWI is able to work with DC in part because there is rail connections between between downtown Washington DC and, and BWI Airport up near Baltimore. Um, but you're not going to be able to get that in a lot of places without an additional investment as, in addition to building an airport, which is not only going to be controversial for the people in Piatone, but the people in Rosemont will either love it because there's less traffic and noise in O'Hare or hate it because I don't know who knows what happens to Rosemont if they close O'Hare or they, would they close O'Hare? They probably wouldn't. They probably would just move some operations. I'd say like American would move to, to Piatone or, or United would move to Piatone, but it would, it's a, it's something that they would consider for sure. Hmm. Um, but when we think about, I mean, it's such a huge undertaking to, to, um, to build a new airport and to try to relocate to, to a new, uh, new airport and something that's happened a lot in the last 50 years across the world. But uh, Denver is really the only major American city to have had a new airport built. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous airport, but it's also massive and also really far from from the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one was a lot closer. Um, but something we see with with these locally owned land uses and, and it's a kind of a general trend, and it's very true of airports too, is that you you don't see airport exp- you'll see airport expansions only hurting. Um, only hurting people who are lesser off and, and are, um, it, you know, more minorities. And in other places, that's where you're talking about the moving the airports if they're next to hmm. next to some uh, better off areas to some extent. St. Louis is an example of an area where they just they've just kept expanding with, n- with little regard for the area um, because it's in a lower it. income neighborhood. Yeah, this is a lower income area uh, as opposed to, to places that are. Um, places like San Diego uh, or a few other places where the airports are right in the center of the city and near a lot of uh, large swath of population, but including mm-hmm. um, some better off, uh, better off people. So um, there's also a huge risk with building these, these second airports. And there's two great examples mm-hmm. in the U.S. or North America, excuse me. <laughs> uh, I don't want to take over Canada just yet. Um, the, the biggest boondoggle is, is probably Montreal, where they built this massive airport, Mirabelle, uh, airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's about 24 miles from downtown. 
Which is relatively close. Yeah. The airports we're talking about. Relatively close, though not nearly as close as Dorval, which is on the island of Montreal. Uh, and the intent was they were going to build this this fancy, shiny airport out in um, out in the suburbs, past the suburbs, really, in Montreal. And it opened in 1975, and it became the international gateway, but it just it, it didn't really catch on with anything anybody else. And then... They decided to just close it to, to passenger travel in, in mm-hmm. the late 90s, and it's just kind of like a it's massive airport. They've torn down the terminals, but it's just this massive airport that's basically at this point just a cargo uh, cargo airport and general aviation airport. So, Why did it fail if it was in a decent enough place? Um, it was just it was still just too far, and there were the 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 links, the transportation links that they were going to build. They were going to build a new highway that didn't end up getting built. They were going to oh. build um, you know ground transportation that just didn't end up. Uh, um, end up working out the I guess rail it emphasizes line out there. the importance of actually connecting the airports. Exactly. So um, they just didn't do any of that when it opened. They were mm-hmm. planning on doing it later. Yeah, and but by that time it just not caught on. The it, it could be seen a similar situation with Dulles, except the fact is that by the time Dulles opened, it was hard to get the planes of like the the super jets, the the you know, 747s and whatnot. Can't mm-hmm. really. I don't think they can come into. Reagan, right. Um, a lot of those planes can't come in and out of Reagan, so that's the, why they didn't. Uh, why Reagan was able to still succeed, but Dulles was able to succeed to some extent. Yeah, uh, was because of that, and <laughs> they could fly international flights out of Reagan. Dulles still works because it's like the only option for international, really. Exactly. Yeah. Do you say Reagan or DCA normally? Um, I I say I have no. I'm not one of those people who has like a deep <laughs> opposition to Reagan. Um, uh-huh. I just I think I've grown up saying it. I'll, I'll say DCA or Reagan or uh, National. I never. I, that was one of the funniest. Like it must have been like a year or two ago. Like the Washington Post did that investigative survey of whether people call it National or DCA or Reagan. And I think they did find an ideological divide over whether or not people would call it Reagan Airport. Yeah, I think it's also an age thing. Honestly, there's some, yeah. so many people. First of all, who who were a alive when Reagan was president and did not mm-hmm. like what he was doing, or b more importantly, probably alive when it was just national and just kept calling it national. Yeah, because it's hard to to yeah, change. Because the change was recent, right? It was like the nineties. It was it was the nineties, I believe. Yeah, yeah or, or late nineties. Um, oh God, so whoever had Donald Trump International Airport. That'll be the new one in Chicago. That'll be the new one in Chicago. Piatone. No, yeah. hopefully not. Um, that would be unfortunate. Yeah, but. It's, it's it's building planning around airports. It is interesting because it's a double edged sword. It's it's a it can be a huge boon for mm-hmm. a place. It could be a huge tourism boon and, and industrial boon because a lot of businesses want to locate near airports. And we've yeah. seen um, that's, hotels and such hotels as well. And I think that's been a big part of of Reston and Herndon and Sterling and Northern Virginia becoming these big. Um, so AOL moved out there, and that's where a lot of these big tech companies are because I think being close to the airport this does just mean in. something. AOL's still a thing. <laughs> Yep, still alive, uh, still alive, barely breathing. Uh-huh. Um, so what's uh, you were going to the second boondoggle? Yes, right? so after the, Montreal, after Montreal um, is uh, it's an ongoing boondoggle. Uh, mm-hmm. It's great. It's uh, it is in Illinois, but not near Chicago. It is Mid America, St. Louis Airport. It is in uh, mm-hmm. in a little town uh, just like outside St. Louis. Yep, it's it's east it's east of East St. Louis. It's in a little town. It's near the little town of Belleville, Illinois. Um, so the eastern suburbs of St. Louis, and basically there's this Air Force Base out there. It still is Air Force Base, got Air Force Base, and they said maybe if we put in a little money, we could build another runway and, and build a terminal and and make a reliever airport because St. Louis Lambert Airport has been pretty much at capacity for a while or had been at that point. This is in the 90s when they're mm-hmm. planning this. So the government out there and um, out there in Belleville, Illinois, in the surrounding county, St. Clair County. They decided that they were going to invest in making that an airport, uh, making uh, turning the little, um, little air force base and splitting it with the government and making it an airport. Uh, the problem is again, distance is an issue. Uh, it is sort of connected to the light rail system in St. Louis, but it is far out there, even for for most people who live in in St. Louis. The St. Louis airport is actually pretty well located within the city, so mm-hmm. a lot of people are going there. Uh, the other big problem with with this airport, besides it kind of just being in the middle of nowhere, uh, is is the fact that right as it opened in, um, I believe it was ninety eight or ninety nine is when it opened, is is when the the bottom kind of fell out and said St. St. Louis Airport. A lot of the the airlines started moving 
flights out of that and it just mm. started declining and there was no real need for that uh, that reliever airport. Um, American Airlines reduced their hub operations in 2003 uh, and then the airport opened a new runway. The St. Louis airport opened a new runway in 2006. So St. Louis airport at that point didn't really need need the, an extra one runway. So right now you can still fly out of in or out of uh, Mid-America St. Louis airport. Allegiant Air is running flights to Fort Walton Beach, Las <laughs> Vegas, Orlando, Punta Gorda, St. Petersburg, uh, and then soon will be Fort Lauderdale and Myrtle Beach. So shout so, out to all of our East St. Louis listeners. Yeah. All, probably none of them. Yes. So To check that out. <laughs> yeah, but, um, it, yeah, so building a second airport is such a risk, or a third airport, or fourth airport, mm-hmm. or, um, in London's case, kind of sixth airport. London's been a hot mess around deciding where to build this airport, right? Yeah, so so London has a bunch of airports. Um, Heathrow is the biggest. But somehow still not enough. Yes, somehow still not enough. Every other airport has a lot of issues, has have a number of issues. Some are just being so far from the city and not having mm-hmm. really high-speed connections to the city. Some, um, the biggest issue, though, for London is Heathrow Airport being, uh, having restrictions and not being able to fly in and out 24 hours a day kind of makes it... Uh, Wait, really? Yeah, you can only fly... I don't know what time it cuts off, but you can't fly in in or out 24-7 there. Which, Isn't Heathrow one of the busiest in the world still? Mm-hmm, yep, but there are... Even with that restriction? Yeah, yeah they managed to they managed to make it work. Um, just busy in and out, yeah. just not during the... Um, Quiet hours, I guess. Yeah, yeah, they. It, it, but it's in this little town, and you, there's these pictures of planes coming in right over houses, and it's, um, it's it's tough for them to expand. They've been able to expand and build, build terminals out, build more terminals, and build more runways. Um. So so yeah, the the, the quota there's, um, between eleven o'clock, eleven p.m. and four a.m. The noisiest aircraft cannot be scheduled for operations, so I mm-hmm. would assume those would be the seven forty-seven and most of the bigger ones. Um, and there's a limit to the number of planes coming in and out uh, during that time as well. Mm-hmm. So Heathrow is the main airport, but there's also Gatwick, Stansted, um, Luton, Southend, and City. So six six airports, I guess, now at this point. Um, and those are in different areas of London, so they serve different people from different areas around it. But for a while, the plan was to expand Gatwick, and then they decided to go back and expand Heathrow, and there's such a big back and forth. But eventually, they want to build a new airport and the main area they're looking is, is the Thames estuary. So east of the city. And there's been a few proposals. Two of them have been called Boris Island because they're connected with <laughs> Boris Johnson of, of Brexit fame, of Brexit right? fame, the former uh, mayor of London. Um, and the funny thing about Boris Johnson, just quick aside, you have the Boris, Boris bikes and Boris Island. <laughs> I don't know how he's just been able to get things named after him. What are Boris bikes? Uh, that's the, the bike share system in London. They're called Boris bikes? Not, not officially, but that's just but what like, everybody like, calls them. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone just calls them Boris bikes. Like if, Oh my God. I don't, I don't, we don't call our bike share. We don't call our bike share system. What Adrian bikes <laughs> yeah. here in DC. Fenty or, share. Fenty share. Yeah. No, we don't, we don't do that, but he gets Boris Island and all of this. Huh. Um, so the new airport would be interesting. A lot of it is on a, a few places, a few sites around the estuary. Some are involved being like literally on the water, just using like reclaimed, reclaimed land. land. Yeah, including one in a place called Shivering Sands, which is just a great, <laughs> great name. I hope they just call the airport that. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of advantages, right? So it's it it brings the the flight traffic out of the the heart of the city and kind of out to the edge, where it's a little bit less of an impact on the city itself and not adding to, uh, to emissions in the city. Um, if you could, you could build a high speed train out there to go along with that and, and make that work. This Virgin Galactic is, is involved and then there'd be room out there to include runways or launch pads or whatever for them <laughs> going into space. Um, you could connect what by a boat time to be living. Yeah, that's great. No, it's going to be great. Uh, you can connect by boat to the um, to the city as well, which could work. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't need to build another runway at Heath, a third runway at Heathrow, a second runway at Gatwick. So, what's the like catch that. here? There's a few. Um, <laughs> so, it's a considerable un- upheaval moving, you know, moving from one airport to another. Cities have done it. Paris did it in the 70s, moving to Dux Charles de Gaulle. Denver, we did it as we talked about. Oslo, a few other places. So, this have would done be such it. a big project that they'd probably close some other airports. They'd probably close some of the smaller airports, and there'd be huge job losses at Heathrow because they would definitely cut back. Right. It's hard to tell who would do what. 
um, in terms of air- airlines. Probably British Airways would probably stay at Heathrow, but some of the other airlines would move to this new airport, but really hard to tell. Um, so that's a big catch. It is still pretty far from the city, it's, and, and you'd have to, you would have to build that, that train risk out there, a train, uh, train line out there. But also, you know, right by a bay, you have fog issues. You have, mm. you, we'd have the Sully issues as well. Burn strikes would be so common <laughs> out there. Uh, you'd have to really get, you'd have to really get uh, aggressive with the, the anti-bird stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot but, of falconers. Yeah, that's exactly. Right <laughs> it would be it, a yes. boon for the falconer industry in in the UK. Yeah, um, other stuff destroying wetland, hurting small towns. But the my favorite potential uh, issue is the SS Richard Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Um, as an aside, I went to a high school named for Richard Montgomery, but this is a ship. Shout out to your high school. Shout out, shout out to RM. But this is a ship also named for the Revolutionary War General, Richard Montgomery. Um, it's an American Wait, ship. British Revolutionary War General? It's American. American. It's, a, it's oh. an American ship, SS. Oh, Richard so this Montgomery. was an American ship that yes. sunk there. It, was, okay. um, it ran aground on this bank in the Thames estuary, and it had 1,400 tons of explosives on it. And it's pictures of it are really interesting. It's part of it is still sticking out out of the water, just like a little bit is sticking <laughs> out there. And but it's got these explosives on it, and nobody really knows whether or not they'll they are still active. And m- most people think that they are. That if they try to do something with it, that the whole thing will just blow up. So that could be in the area that they'd be building the airport, and could get <laughs> the silt could mess with them and it could blow the whole thing up. It's also a potential tar- terrorist attack target yeah. if you just hit the hit the ship. Um, oh, here's really 1,400 just... tons of explosives <laughs> conveniently next to this busy airport. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's not something that we want to that, that they want to deal with. So um, this is it's such a huge thing as as, these city, as our cities grow that that these airports need to grow with them, and we're really hitting this with a lot of infrastructure. Really, not just airports, but when we're thinking about it's really comprehensive. Yeah, it's rail. It's probably like the cities that grow around that or grow to fit those airports. Mm-hmm. And with when a lot of our infrastructure that was built, so much of it was built in the around the turn of the century and in those 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 years since, and everything around it in terms of land use around these airports have changed. The land use has changed, types of neighborhood they're in has changed, and the way the airport buildings themselves. Are changed. We've been able to fix that. So many of the older terminals um, was the World Port, the weird circular one at JFK. Mm-hmm. So many of the older terminals have been torn down and replaced. So we've been able to fix that to some extent. But in terms of siting these, it's such a it's such an immense. It's a decades long thing to try to build one and get all the land yeah. together. And because it's such a long process, it it seems interesting to me from like a political perspective that uh, the the politics around it could change in the time that it takes to plan one of these airports or just a city could grow to surpass the area you planned it. So like the whole situation could change by the time you even break ground. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a, such a tough planning problem because yeah, you do have to think that far ahead and you have to be able to be flexible. Um, so many airports have been built. The more recent, a lot of the more recent ones have been built to be able to expand as you need to. So Dallas, Fort Worth, if you've ever been to Dallas, Fort Worth, it's, it's got a road in the middle and it's got, on each side, it's actually got two on one side and three on the other, these little like half circles off, mm-hmm. the, off the road. And that's where the terminals are. But they've made sure they had the land going either way. I think they could build, I want to say it's like eight or nine on each side. So like anticipating expansion. In, in case they need to expand to this absurd mm-hmm. size, which they probably won't need to because I think planes <laughs> have just gotten bigger since they've done that. So they yeah. don't need to be nearly as many flights. But, but of course... Uh, will occasionally bring up geographic determinism on this podcast to say that like that's a city in Texas that can expand in any direction it wants that's forever. Uh, and so they can allow for that kind of luxury of building in expansion zones for yeah, airports. The one thing is you have a lot of airports built near water because that's oftentimes the margins where it makes sense to, to put one in. It's also in, in places like Hong Kong. It's one of the few flat places. It's, it's the area right next to the water. Or land that they build out into the water. Exactly. So that's that's where you see a lot of that. And that's, I mean, it's easy because you can make it flat as, as you need to. Um, or, or um, but it's, it's easy because it's flat, but it's also hard because you can't expand out without building more land into the water or... Um, if you're near a river like like Reagan National Airport, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use both. Uh, <laughs> like like DCA is here in DC. It's you, you can't build further out of the Potomac, or else there'll be no Potomac. And it's yeah. it, so with so many airports are in those situations. That's where you have a lot of these airport replacements in these cities around the world. I think I saw an article lately about how um, airports are particularly threatened by climate change because mm-hmm. they'll they're usually very close to sea level, and so they'll be the first affected. That's already happening with flooding at Reagan, actually. Yeah. 
That's, a, that's something I've never really thought about, but that's a huge, uh, huge climate change. You San Francisco airport built out into the water. Yeah. Um, a lot For of more on that, go to our first episode where Dylan talked about flooding and climate change for like half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting yeah, aspect of all of this. So it's, and yeah, we don't really, there's so many changes that we can't anticipate with transportation and uh, and just how we'll need to use these spaces and how we'll need to I mean who knows we might not need airports for some unknown reason in 50 years we have mm-hmm. no way of we have no we can assume that we will still need airports but um, how we get to the airports will we will we still need parking lot garages will just a little autonomous one person <laughs> uber just take us there and drop <laughs> us off yeah. will we still you know need these these sort of connections to the airports um so from the ter- terminal design side, things to do so much has changed with security. Um, my favorite little story with this is at Kansas City, they they built this airport in the in the late '60s, and their plan was pretty genius at the time was to make it. It's only um, they wanted you to be able to get from your car to the plane in 90 seconds. That was wow. the plan. So the the buildings are like these really narrow little arcs around these the driveways and. Mm-hmm. It was genius. And then a few years later, after a big spate of hijackings, oh, yeah. um, the TSA was created and airport security was enforced on these places. And, and they said, how about fuck your convenience? <laughs> exactly. So if you go to Kansas City, the security is like strung along this like laterally oh. in the buildings because it's like not built for that at all. And there's yeah. no room for that at all. So it's such an awkward fit. And that's something that with if they really thought through planning lines, like maybe... They'll want to put like a security thing here at some point, or maybe they'll want to put more space in the terminal. But it's just not something that mm-hmm. that clicked, and they're still dealing with that issue to this day in Kansas yeah. City. So yeah, security is a whole other thing. Quick uh, props to the Copenhagen Airport. Have you ever been there? I haven't. No. Um, so first of all, they, one of the airport terminals is shaped like a paper airplane, which is amazing. That is awesome. Um, but Sophie and I were there, and we were flying out of there. And as you approach security at Copenhagen Airport, they have like posters and like plaques on the wall saying how this airport is like world award winning for like convenient airport security and like the nicest security and i was like skeptical but it's amazing <laughs> like it's such a quick process yeah they're really nice about it and it's amazing how how much that improves the experience of like good security do you have a least favorite or favorite in america in terms of security um, i was yeah i was I haven't been to that many. I definitely have not been to 50 airports. Um, I mean, no, in the U.S., I I just grew up flying in and out of Newark Airport so often. And so, like, that's my perception of airports. That's a pretty, Um, I mean, that's a good, you have rose-colored glasses when you go anywhere else, basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, My friend once described Newark Airport as a sad truck stop bathroom with planes. (laughs) Um which is astoundingly accurate. I think they've improved it since, but I still can't. I can barely stomach Newark when I'm there. Um, I, I guess in the U.S., um, SFO is probably the nicest airport I've been to. Yeah. With their yoga room and everything. Yeah, SFO is really nice. I've only flown in and not out, so I haven't had the time to really take it all in. My least favorite far and away in America is Miami. Um, really? Yeah. It's Once you're in the terminal, it's fine, but... I've always had just nightmare security security line situations there where it's just been just so long. Um, and there's just so much because American Airlines has like basically the whole airport that there could be just so much walking from where you check in to where your security gate is. Mm-hmm. It's a mess. LAX is also a mess, but Miami is its own special brand of just <laughs> yeah. just absurd. What would be your favorite in the US? My favorite. Um, I like I like BWI because it's kind of feels like home to me. I think I just got used to it. <laughs> Sentimental value. Yeah. Um, Tampa is really good because Tampa actually was able to, to some extent follow through on Kansas city's promise and like not having to walk from your car to the, to the, um, to the plane. So everything's in this little building in the middle. And then that's where you, you check in and you do security in this little building and then you just jump on a little train and that mm-hmm. takes you right out to your gate. Um, so Tampa, I like, um, those are those are my my top favorites. It's a schlep and a half to get to, but Dulles as an airport itself is really nice. Yeah, Dulles the trains and just the design overall. I think Dulles by itself, yeah, it's yeah. it's really not not that bad. Also, I just learned um, was designed by Euro Sarnayan, I think the same guy that did the St. Louis Arch, mm-hmm. which he, made perfect sense when I learned it. Yeah, he did that. He also did the uh, one of the terminals at. Uh, 
at JFK, the one that was, I think it was the, I want to say it was the the TWA terminal. Mm. Uh, it's the one that it's kind of like a. I can't. It's a podcast. I can't. I can't. <laughs> He's making it. some weird gesticulations. Um, it's it's now that they they didn't tear down the building because it's historic. They just they tore down one of the other terminals, but they kept that. But they built the new JetBlue terminal like mm. behind it. Huh. I think that's Terminal Five, three and or five. That was good old Eero. Yeah, that was him as well. He's a he's a great architect. He's just, is he still alive? He is not. No, okay. he was he was a great architect. I'm sure he's still, <laughs> his buildings are still still survive. Yeah, um, but I'm pretty sure he, he died a while ago. Um, yeah, so I think the just the politics and the planning of airport location it's just such a tricky business, and it's never going to get easier. Probably only harder as cities expand and everything. Well, it would get easier if if we descend into a dictatorship. And yeah, that too. Yeah. They just build. I mean, it's the one thing when you look at where they built these new airports. It's like across the world. It's like, well, you know, like Thailand just All got the new really airports. nice airports are in terrible regimes. Yeah, like yeah, Dubai and 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 these places. You're like, well, they don't necessarily have <laughs> the same. Uh, they didn't have to have a, a hearing, I'm sure, or at least the same sort of public input process yeah. as as uh, as a democracy. Let that be the lesson from this episode then. A terrible airport is a sign of a thriving democracy. <laughs> <laughs> to some extent that is true. Because it requires so much central planning. Yeah, it does. It's it's very, very hard to, to make that work and um, it's either yeah, if it's a terrible airport in a cramped place, it's just you could tell what happened. You could tell they built the airport and then people built around it and then Yeah. And then it's gridlock because mm. democracy. Um, and to pull in uh, my one international example that I have, um, Sophie, our unofficial Peru correspondent for Municipals, um, was talking about, I'm forgetting the name, but uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, currently, the only international airport in Peru is near Lima. Um, probably the only, if not the busiest. And they're planning on one close to Cusco, um, which is uh, one of the other big cities there. And surprisingly, it's kind of a reversal of a lot of the land use battles that you see in the U.S. where um, some of the lower income communities near Cusco um, have actually had massive strikes in support of this airport because it's going to bring in tons of tourism dollars. And the wealthier people that have sort of gotten wealthy off of the presence of the international airport in Lima are the ones opposing it. Um, And so, it, you know... If it does go through, which I think it is, it'll transform this whole region near Cusco pretty much as soon as it opens. Um, but it seems to be like a huge uh, economic development opportunity there to bring in um, another facet of airports. Uh, and hopefully they can they can target that development towards some of the, the communities that have been there um, to try and build wealth there. But... Uh, it's amazing how much public outcry there is both for and against this um, and the constituencies that come up around it. Did you find the name of it? Chinchero International Chinchero, Airport. Yes. The, the Wikipedia article on it is, is rather sparse. It's a, it's a line long. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's going to eventually replace this airport that looks like it needs replacing because it's just surrounded by yeah, the, the city. The main airport in Cusco it like is smack dab in the middle of the city. It, it, I think it's like one landing strip, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, I think the plan is that if they build Chinchero to turn the airport in Cusco into like a central park. Yeah, it's interesting what we've seen with with adaptive reuse of these spaces. And in, in Denver, Stapleton Airport was the one that they replaced with the new Denver Airport. That's being turned into a whole new community called Stapleton. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, Orange County, they were building on the former um, blanking on the name of the. Um, of the Air Force Base, but there's an old Air Force Base that closed, and they're they're turning part of it into a massive park, and then mm. they're building on, on another smaller part of it as well. So, a lot of options if Cusco chooses to close. A lot of places they could look to. Um, we've seen I'm trying to think of any uh, any bigger American examples, but we have seen when airports have closed, it creates a weird space to be building on because it's usually a massive amount of space, and you, you, it's a great opportunity. It's obviously, flat land, yeah, mm-hmm, but it's a um, it'll be interesting to see what they'll do with Alejandro Velasco Estete, International <laughs> Airport. Solid pronunciation. So I was going to do the uh, favorite and least favorite airport as our closing bit, but uh, how about instead, to close us out, um, best food experience in an airport, if you can recall one. Best food experience? Or most interesting. Or most interesting. Personally, um, not best by far, there is a Panda Express in 
I want to say JFK, that maybe is the saddest meal of my life. Um, Because I was just starving and hangry. We had just come back from Puerto Rico through like Dallas uh, and just needed something. And it was the first thing there when we got off the plane. And just the worst lo mein in my life made out of linguine noodles. Um, and just being in JFK just bums me out all the time. So like that, <laughs> that's probably the most standout food experience in an airport. Definitely not the best. Oh yeah. I've had some interesting ones. Um, once when I first got to Thailand, I had a, like a very, like I had Thai iced tea and I remember it was funny cause I was like, wait, I could just order iced tea and they're going to give me Thai iced tea. You don't even have Thailand. to say Thai iced tea. Exactly. Uh-huh. That was a moment. I was happy about that. I was just very pleased. And it had, they had mango and sticky rice mm-hmm. too with it. It was really good. Um, my other weird, my weirdest airport food related moment was sort of food related. It was in a, me and two of my other colleagues were in this Burger King at the Phuket airport in Thailand hmm. while our boss was, we were waiting for him while our boss had to go exchange money in town. And I, there's somebody that I saw next to us and I was like, I'd seen him before, but I couldn't <laughs> place him. But we were there for like a half an hour just sitting in this Burger King. Like we just ordered one little thing so he could just pretend to be like eating in. And it, finally he said something and we were able to connect. It's somebody I played quiz bowl against in high school <laughs> um, who I hadn't seen in like five years. And we recognized each other in the, in the Phuket airport Burger King. So. Wow. That's wild. This world is too small for us. We need, we need, to, we need another planet. <laughs> Seven billion is not big enough. That's exactly why we need another planet. So I don't mm-hmm. run into people I know in Thailand. I feel like <laughs> not that the person I ran into is bad or anything. It's just the yeah. concept of not being safe from running into people anywhere in the world is right. Not even there. Not even. Have you been to the Ben's chili bowl in, in national? That was a pretty frequent stop for me. If I had a flight and I got to the airport more than 90 minutes before I have actually stopped at that Metro stop just to eat at the Ben's chili bowl in the airport and then get back on the Metro. Why? (laughs) Cause I was in Alexandria and I didn't want to, that's true. I felt like it. I don't know. They're planning to put that behind security soon. Oh no! Yeah, okay. I'll so have to, we have to protest that. Maybe yeah. <laughs> have that be your NIMBY, not not in my airport terminal. Yeah, Night, Nymat. <laughs> um, all right, Ray. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, I hope we can have you on the podcast again when um, Brit and Dylan get their shit together. <laughs> yeah, come on, Brit. <laughs> Dylan. Brit has an excuse. Uh, Dylan, I hope is okay. Dylan, if you're out there. Um, <laughs> Thank you for editing this episode because I don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dylan, hopefully you are, we have found you by the time you hear this episode. Yeah, as soon as we log off here. Yeah. Um, all right, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>